The title of this morning's message is Waking Up to His Presence for the last several Sundays, not in the last week, so I just moved that last week's sermon to this week. We have been studying along this theme of the Christmas awakening, understanding that when Jesus came, that people were waking up to some realities concerning who God is and what God wants to do in their life and in this world. And today we're looking specifically at what it means when we say that God is present and what it means to wake up to the presence of God. And the ones who are going to help us see that are the wise men, the magi. Traditionally, we think of them as three, but nowhere in Scripture does it say there were just three men. Uh, we get that from the number of gifts that were given, but, but we don't know really how many there were. There's a lot that we don't know about these men. But I just want to focus this morning on this idea of worship because they came to worship this baby that was born and the fact that they were so drawn, driven, compelled to find this Christ child. So in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, this is what we read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found them, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. That was a miracle. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Father, we thank you for your word it is precious to us. We know it is food for our soul, guidance for our lives. But more than anything, we know it is your voice to our soul this morning. And so, Holy Spirit of God, would you make it live and cause it to burn in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, much of the year, there are people who go through January, February, March, all the way through November, and they may get caught up in the Christmas season and caught up in the Christmas 
traditions and practices of their family or their community. But it's possible to go through a whole year and even enter the Christmas season and be entirely unconscious of God. To not have truly thought about Him or talked to Him or had any kind of interaction with Him. And so, for someone like that, I would pray, who comes into a service like this, it would be a kind of an awakening for you to begin to think about why we do this and what this Christmas thing is all about. Because embedded in these stories are awesome truths that apply to you and to me. We know, for example, that his name is to be Emmanuel. And we saw it in the song on the screen, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Now, he didn't do that because we twisted his arm and said, oh, God, come be with us. He did that because he wanted to be with us. He wanted to come and make himself known to you and me. Yes, he had revealed himself in the Old Testament. Yes, he had inspired the writings that we read. Yes, he had revealed himself in many different ways. But ultimately, when God wanted you to know who he is and what he is like and what he thinks and how he feels about you, he took on flesh and blood like you and me to manifest himself to us. God with us. He wants you to know him. He wants you to understand that his presence is real. That there's no place you can go where God is not. If you could travel to the very end of creation, to the extreme distances involved in the universe, billions and trillions of light years, and go to the very end of creation, you still would not have run out of God. The universe is a small thing. He made it. He exists outside of time. The past, the present, the future, all the same to him. The Bible says in Isaiah 57 that he inhabits eternity. He is infinite. And everything he is, is infinite. Jeremiah 31.3 says he loves us with an everlasting love. A love with no beginning and no end. And so we, we got to understand that when we read about the Christmas story, we're talking about a God like that who chose to come and make himself in a very limited and finite way. He wanted us to know him, to manifest his presence to us. And he has not changed his objective. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. But it goes on to say, for those who come to God must believe that he is or that he exists and that he is the diligent rewarder of those who seek him. And so if someone is seeking him, what's the reward? What does he reward a seeking person with? Himself. He manifests himself to the person who seeks him throughout the Old Testament. He, there are these cries where God says, seek my face, 
Seek my face. Seek my face. If you're seeking someone's face, how close are you going to get to them? That's not a telephone call. That's not a long-distance encounter. Face to face. (laughs) He wants you and I to know him in that way. And so we come to the story of the wise men. And someday we'll have our many questions about these men answered. But God put it in their heart to seek God. And they were tireless and they were relentless in their pursuit to see God. To see the one born king of the Jews. The Jews were known to have a God who lives and a God who is real. Who's the true king of the Jews? It is God himself. We come seeking the one who is born king of the Jews. And so God miraculously put it in their heart. Somehow they looked at the heavens. They saw this one star. They began to follow that star. They come to Jerusalem, they're asking questions. Where's this one born king of the Jews? Herod turns to his wise men, his wise men, and they give him some scripture. And they go to Bethlehem, and then that that star appears again. And and it's such a remarkable star. Astronomers and NASA scientists have tried to figure out what that star was. Was it a comet? Was it all these things? What we know is this. It moved, and then it was motionless. I don't know any star that does that. I've seen a lot of shooting stars in my life, asteroids. I've never seen one move and stop. But this one did. And so it's just remarkable what God is doing. But we want to see that these men have said that their mission, their objective, is not only to find where God is, but they want to worship him when they find him. And that may be your heart today. You say, I'm not interested in religion. I'm not interested in a Baptist church. I'm not interested in, in, in religiosity and people who just play games with church. And I'm not interested in any of that. I'm seeking God. I want to know God. If so, you're in good company. That's who these wise men were. And, and the question, though, I have for you is, when you find him, what are you going to do with him? When you discover the presence of God and you, you've been seeking him and he, he graces you in such a way that you're able to find him, what are you going to do then? These men understood that when I find God, when I find the real God, when I find the true God, I've got to worship Him. And what they discovered is that was a lot easier to do than they ever imagined. When you come into the presence of God, worship is not that difficult. And so these men represent true worshipers. In verse 10 it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. Why? Because they knew they were coming to the end of their Mission, And so I want to characterize what a true worshiper is. And I want us to understand that worship is in response to the presence of God. But I want to use these wise men and their experience to help us understand it. So here's the first thing. True worshipers want. True worshipers want, number one, to be near him. True worshipers want to be near him. In verse 11 of the passage that I read in Matthew 2, it says, When they had come into the house, it's just a phrase, but I want you to see it. When they had come into the house, you've got to understand that that statement, when they had come into the house, comes at the end of a long journey. They saw the star in the sky. They were not content to stay in their house. When they saw the star, they were not content to just find the right country and be in the same country where God is. 
when they saw that star and God put it in their heart to find the king, they weren't content to come to the same town where God was or be outside the house where God was. They came into the house. And that's the kind of journey that you and I have when we're seeking God. Similarly, true worshipers are not satisfied with things that fall short of the presence of God. Number one, true worshipers are not satisfied with just the knowledge that he exists. In verse 2 it says, where is he? Where is he? I don't just want to know that God exists. I want to meet God. Where is he? And some people will talk about God academically. They'll discuss him as if he's just some subject in school. They were not satisfied with that. Oh, yes, I believe God exists. Here's my argument for the existence of God. That wasn't sufficient. True worshipers, similarly, are not satisfied with just mere descriptions found in the Bible. In verses 4 and 5, it says that Herod turned to the, 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 the scribes and the priests and said, what is, what, where is he going to be born? And they opened up the Bible and they found these prophecies. And, and, and so there was scripture describing what was going to take place and where. They could have sat back and said, that's great, let's study the Bible. Let's study that Bible passage. You know, there are people that have studied the Bible their entire lives, but have never sought the presence of God. They've never sought his face. And these dear ones were not satisfied with just knowing God exists or just reading about him in the text. Thirdly, true worshipers are not satisfied with the works of his hands. They could have said, wow, look at that star. Sometimes we can just get all caught up in the things that God has done in the world, the miracles he has done, the miracles he is doing. We can get caught up in, in answered prayer. Oh, how God has answered our prayers. Many of us don't know anything about that. We can just get consumed with the things that God is doing, the works of his hands. They were not satisfied with that. They wanted to be near him, to know him. And when you meet a heart like that, get ready, because you're about to meet someone who's getting ready to meet God. A true worshiper wants to be near him. Secondly, a true worshiper wants to experience him. To be near him, to experience him. And this is amazing, and I hope you'll hang with me. Verse 11, it says, And when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother. Okay, they made eye contact. They saw him there. And then it says, And fell down. And fell down. Now, you've got to hear me when I explain the significance of what it means when it says they fell down. Because consistently in the New Testament, when it says that something fell or fell down, it was involuntary. Oh, I think I'll lie down here. Here's the baby Jesus. I think I'm going to lie down here on my face. No. Let me give you some examples, just real quick. Um, Matthew 7, verse 27, And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. It just collapsed. It fell. And great was its fall. Same word used here to describe what happened to those wise men. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? He's not talking about a bird that just sort of says, I'm going to land here. He's talking about a bird that got shot out of the air, seized up, died in mid-flight, and fell to the ground. 
Let me give you another example. Matthew 13, verse 3. The sower went forth to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. Fell, fell. Here's seed being broadcast, just cast out. It has no control over where it's going. It just falls. And some fell among thorns. Matthew 15, verse 27. These are all Matthew using this word this way. The same writer in Matthew 2. In 15, verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The crumbs don't sit there and say, I think we'll fall off the table. No. They're, they're, they're knocked off. They're eating. The crumbs fall. So what's he describing here? He's a, I got a note from an old friend of ours this morning, an elderly woman. We've known her for years, dear friend of ours. And she just asked me to pray for her because she's, she's in her late 70s, early 80s, and she fell. She, she was out in her yard, some leaves, there were acorns under the leaves, and she slipped and fell, broke her arm. That's the way this word's being used here. My grandfather died a couple years ago, but he used to be fascinated. He lived up in Tennessee and Kentucky for a while. He used to be fascinated with a creature called a fainting goat. Have any of you heard of a fainting goat? Yeah, they're genetically wired that when adrenaline hits their system, when, when you clap your hands or startle them in some way, they get ready to run, huh, and they can't run. They freeze up and they fall over. It only lasts a few seconds, but it was great entertainment. Fainting goats, they just fall. Do you realize that's what Matthew describes happening to those wise men? They walk into the room. They see the baby Jesus, and they fall. They fall. They just, they just collapse. They can't stay on their feet. John Wesley, who was instrumental in the first great awakening in the middle of the 18th century, wrote January 1st, 1739, before he was known as a revivalist or an evangelist, was praying with a group of men, he said, about 60 of our brothers until 3 in the morning. He said, the power of God came mightily on us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. He would see that happen as he preached in different revival meetings that he would preach, would see people falling, would see phenomena like that, people crying out, people yelling. It was disturbing to him. He wrote later, he prayed, Lord, send us revival without its defects. The scary stuff. Send us revival without the de defects. But if this is not possible, send revival, defects, and all. Just send it, Lord. Come. Kyle Eidelman, who wrote the book, Not a Fan. Any of you all ever read that book? Not a Fan. Great little book. He said, a few years ago, I prayed, Lord, bring revival to the churches. I was not ready for the response that followed. I felt impressed with these words. You don't want revival. It will ruin your schedule, your dignity, your image, and your reputation as a person who is well-balanced. Men will weep throughout the congregation. Women will wail because of the travail of their own souls. Young adults will cry like children at the magnitude of their sin. With the strength of my presence, the worship team will cease playing. Time will seem to stand still. You won't be able to preach because of the emotions flooding your own soul. 
You'll struggle to find words, but only find tears. Even the most dignified and reserved among you will be broken and humbled as little children. The proud and self-righteous will not be able to stand in my presence. The doubter and unbeliever will either run for fear or fall on their knees and worship me. There can be no middle ground. The church will never be the same again. The presence of God deeply affects the people of God. And we could spend more time there. I'm, I'm not going to, but it, this is seen over and over in Scripture. Trembling. In Isaiah 64, I can mention this one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, Isaiah prays, that you would come down. You, God, would come down. Now listen, God is everywhere. There's no place where God is not. He knows that. But what is he asking for? Oh, God, that you would come down. He's asking that God would make us aware of his presence. Oh, God, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence, literally at your face. At your face. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Psalm 1611, David writes, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy, fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. If we had time, I could give you example after example in the Old and the New Testament of how the presence of God transforms our lives. Why should we seek to pray daily? Why should we seek time alone with God? Why should we seek His face, meaning His presence? Why? Because He wants us to have fellowship with Him, and in that fellowship, we are changed. We are changed. I said I wouldn't. Let me give you one more example that comes to mind. Um, just listen. This will be a familiar passage to some of you. This is the end of Isaiah 40. Just remember that. It's the end of Isaiah 40. Listen, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That is our God. He doesn't grow tired. I get tired. Do you get tired? He never gets tired. He doesn't learn anything. Students, wouldn't that be great? God doesn't learn anything. Why? Because he already knows everything. He, he doesn't age. He doesn't change. He is always new. And, and, and he is God. And here it just makes this one observation that he never gets tired. Now listen to what it says next. Listen. This God who never gets tired he gives power to the weak. Anybody feel weak? He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, what do you think is involved with waiting on the Lord if it's not to seek his face, to seek his presence, to wait for him to come? But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What does the presence of God do for that person who waits on the Lord? Do you think it's just about making God happy? Oh, God, I praise you, and I hope that makes you happy. No. Yes, we should praise him, but it transforms us. 
It makes us new people. We think, oh, being a Christian, that means i got to try really hard not to sin. No, what I need to try really hard to do is seek God. And when we discover Him, when we seek Him, when we enjoy Him and we let Him enjoy us, we are never the same again. We are different people. We are transformed. So people who are true worshipers, they want to be near Him. They want to experience Him. Number three, they want to surrender to Him. They want to surrender to him. In verse 11, it says, They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down. Involuntary reaction to the presence of God. We've already called attention to that. I just want you to know, when God comes near, it affects us in so many ways. Spiritually, emotionally. His presence of, and his purity just lights up everything that's not pure in us. And we become conscious of our sinfulness. So many things happen when he draws near. One of those things that can actually have a physiological effect. When he manifests his presence, you won't be able to stay on your feet when he does it with intensity. How else do you think that happens in Philippians 2 where it says that at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? It's involuntary. In the full manifest presence of God, the King. And so... Something else happens. It says they fell down and worshipped him. Now this was their mission. This was their stated mission. Where's the king of the Jews? We want to find him so we can worship him. Well, here it happened. They found him. They fell down. They collapsed. They worshipped him. I've talked about this word before because this is the same word. This is chapter 2. Two chapters later in chapter 4, verse 9, the very same sequence, falling down and worship, is used again only this time by the devil. During the temptation of Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 9, the devil said to him, all these things, he shows him all the kingdoms and the power structures and the control features of the planet that he says he's in control of. And he says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I've illustrated this before, but you need to see this. Proskuneo. This is the word for worship. It's two words put together. But proskuneo, they fall down, yes, but the worship part looks like this. The worship part looks like this. Proskuneo, kuneo means to kiss. Pros means towards. It means literally to lead with the lips, to be totally surrendered. I can't imagine a more vulnerable position in front of someone than to lie flat on your face before them. And the devil is saying, fall down and worship me. That's what those wise men did to that baby, Jesus. They fell down involuntarily and they worshiped him. Nothing they said is recorded here. They may have sang a song. It's not recorded here. They, may have recited, they might have recited poetry. Not recorded here. They may have spoken words of worship. It's not recorded here. But it says they fell down and worshipped. And the very essence of that word for worship is a physical action. A physical demonstration of total and complete surrender to his authority. 
and to his rule. You want to find the presence of God? You know what waits for you? Are you prepared to become unhinged? Are you prepared to let go of everything that you think matters in exchange for what really matters? Have you ever worshipped the Lord physically? If not, why not? When, um, when I pray, I have a chair. Sometimes I just sit in my chair. I have my Bible in my lap, and I'll pray. Some days, that's not where I want to be. Other days, I get on my knees. I plant my face in that chair. There are other days, that's not enough either. Other days, I just have to lie flat on my face and pray. I remember a time as a younger pastor when if you were in a Baptist church and somebody was praising the Lord, if they raised their hand, everybody would stare at them. Say, did you see that guy be a Pentecostal? Must be something. We were scared to worship the Lord. We were afraid of it. What will people say if I raise my hand? If I worship the Lord? If I just kneel down? If I do it in a way where I'm just worshiping the Lord, but others might see. You know, it really doesn't matter what other people think. When you and I worship the Lord, it's not about what other people see. Whether they get it or not. It's about you and Him. And physically, physically expressing your total surrender. Your total surrender to Him. Not for others to see. Things I described are not for others to see. Just for Him. Just for Him. They want to surrender to Him. It goes on in verse 11. It says, when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So many times we think we're sort of buying God off. We, we give our time. We volunteer for this or that in church. We surrender to him. We, 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 we give certain things to him. And those things are important if it comes from the heart. But in this particular case, what I want you to see is long before they gave the gifts, they gave themselves. Long before they gave the gifts, they gave themselves completely, unreservedly, 100% surrender to God. Then they gave gifts. Then they gave gifts. Number four, last thing. True worshipers want to be near him, to experience him, to surrender to him. And finally, they want to serve him. They want to serve him. Again, this is not just a, a job at a church. We need servants at church. Don't, don't hear me say we don't need volunteers. Oh, the Father knows we need volunteers at Wind Baptist Church. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to serve him is an attitude of the heart. So that whatever I'm doing is for him. Whatever you do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. You don't serve men, you serve Christ, Paul would write. And so to serve him, verse 12, here's how I see it. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, what did Herod say to do? He said, come see me. I want to worship him. Now, you know better. You know the story. He had no desire to worship this baby. 
He wanted to kill the baby. He wanted to, to kill him like he killed his own sons, which he did. He wanted to maintain his grip on power. He had no interest in that. Did those wise men know what a devil Herod was? No, they didn't know that. And so the Lord, in a dream, spoke to them, warned them, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't do that. When we serve the Lord, it is absolutely essential that you and I are sensitive to his voice. There are a lot of religious motions and activities you can go through and not be serving the Lord. If I'm going to serve the Lord, if you're going to serve the Lord, I've got to hear him and obey him. And so they did both here. They heard him. He warned them in a dream. Now, it may not be a dream. It may just be a sense of oughtness. I think God's leading me too, and you fill in the blank. I believe God's prompting me. God's leading me. I've been reading in Scripture. I've been praying. I've been talking to others. And God has put it on my heart to do X, Y, Z. And you're being sensitive to him when you say those things. It's hard to put in words. But God has formed your heart to do something for him. And more significantly, you're ready to do it. Not only were they sensitive to his voice, but they were obedient to his voice. And the very next thing they did is exactly what he told them to do. Now, if you want to experience God, I can't offer you any greater encouragement as your pastor and as a brother in Christ than to say to you the moment, the very moment, the very second, the very instant you know God is speaking to you that you are immediately obedient to what he has said. You talk about something that's going to unlock joy in your heart, something that's going to lift the burdens off your shoulders, something that's going to enable you to rest in him in new ways, is when you discover that when God speaks, that's all you need. That's all you need. And so these men were obedient to his voice. They didn't know Herod's plan. God did. And so much of what goes on in your life and my life, I don't have a clue what the outcomes are, what's going to go on, what's going to happen next. I think I do sometimes. Most of the time I don't. But I do know this, that if I do what God says to do, it is awesome to experience what it is just to be in the flow of what God is doing. Just to be in the flow of what God is doing in your life, in your church, in your community, in your generation. And the only way you and I can get there is when we recognize he's speaking, that we obey his voice. They will obey his voice. Are you waking up to the presence of God? If you, if you are, how would you know? I just want you to see this last phrase in verse 12 where these men said, we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. Is that why you have come? That was their objective. They weren't going to be satisfied with fake religion, pretend church, people playing church. They weren't interested in that. We have come, they said, to worship him. That's it. That's it. And everything that happened thereafter in their life was defined by their encounter with God. Have you come to worship him? The transformation you seek, the victory that you might desire over some besetting problem or sin in your life, 
the answer to the questions that are plaguing your soul are going to be found on the heart level. When you make a choice, a decision, I want to know God, period. 